0: Well, it's good to have you all here tonight. Like I said, it's, it's really cool to be in my parents' house, have this <coughs> kind of group. Um, tonight is a really special night to me because of the topic about what we're talking about, and especially in relation to what we just did. You know, it, I, I don't know if we could consider what we just did a feast, but in some ways, I guess I would, right? We share mm-hmm. a meal together and uh, partake together. And where we're at in John is Jesus' first sign. The first sign he gives to reveal his glory. We're in John 2. John 2 verses 1 to 11 is the passage we're reading tonight. Um, And I'll read it before I go through it. Monique was going to read it, but she's she's doing some other stuff right now, so I'll just read it. In in chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day... There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing twenty or thirty gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. That's our passage tonight. You know, I, I thought about weddings a lot as I studied this passage, right? There's a, a specialness to the celebration of a wedding. When Monique and I got married, um, it, was, it was kind of crazy because we didn't know what to expect. Our life was in flux, and we had our wedding, and 500 people showed up, which is kind of crazy to reflect mm-hmm. on. We kind of openly invited our church at the time, and, and many of you were there, and um, that was really sacred to us that was a celebration a true joyous occasion for us and i think about how beautiful it is that jesus the man jesus attends a wedding i feel like we don't think about that very often the fact that he lived a human life and did the things that humans do he attended Banquets and weddings and feasts. And he went to the festivals in Jerusalem, right, when the Jewish feasts would happen. Jesus was a man who, who was truly a man. He was not above the things of humanity, he partook of them, right? He even says in the Synoptic Gospels, remember, he's talking about John the Baptist. He said, Well, you said John the Baptist, he was basically a, a killjoy, right? Because he never showed up to anything and you call me a drunkard because I go to everything, right? Jesus says that. I, I go to all these, I hang out with prostitutes and tax collectors and I go to these festivals and feasts and, and you call me a drunkard. Well, Jesus participates in the life of people. And so you have this opening up uh, of John 2 where Jesus, his mother, and his disciples are all attending this wedding. Now we don't know, the text doesn't tell us, but it's odd that Jesus, his mother, and his disciples are all at this wedding. So it's probable that it's probably a family member of Jesus and his mother. Okay? It's unlikely that Jesus and his mother would be invited to a wedding that they wouldn't know you know, the person together. Somehow they had a familial connection of Jesus' mother and he were there. Um, and also his disciples. And that's fairly common that teachers, their disciples, would be extended in invitation as well. And uh, really... Weddings in, the, in first century Palestine were considered uh, kind of an open invite to some extent. That many people were coming to the wedding. Many people would be invited, and they, they would all come and be a part. And that's the context of what's going on in John 2. So they attend a wedding there in Cana. Uh, we don't know this yet, but Nathaniel, who we saw at the end of chapter 1, at the very end of the Gospel of John, it says Nathaniel is actually from Cana. So that's interesting, too. It's possible maybe Nathaniel knew knew uh, this person as well. And it goes on and says this, the wine ran out. So what is that telling us? Well, weddings in Jewish tradition usually lasted seven days, so they were about a week long. Um, so there would be a lot of supplies needed for that. Okay? And we don't know exactly what day this was of the feasting, it never says, uh, but we know they ran out of what they had. And running out of what you had is is a pretty big slight in this culture, right? We don't have an understanding of how important hospitality was uh, in that day and age. We just don't have the same categories. In fact, obviously we don't because most of us don't even know our neighbors anymore, right? It's it's just that's the reality of hospitality these days, at least in our culture, our Western culture. And... um, if you look at those days, hospitality was extremely important. And to, and to run out of supplies is a deep offense to your guests. And so what happens is this host is undergoing shame, right? For him to run out of supplies would be shameful to him. And we'll talk more about shame in a minute, but it would be very shameful for this host to run out of supplies. And it's interesting because Jesus' mother somehow knows about this problem, right? Right? They ran out of wine, and and whether uh, Mary was, I don't know if she was working during the wedding, like she was maybe helping prepare the food. Um, That was very typical for women to help prepare the wedding and prepare the food. But she knew something was amiss, right? Because she comes to Jesus, she approaches her son, and she says this She says, "Um, They have no wine. It's that simple. They have no wine. So they have no wine. And it's interesting, Jesus' response. And in some ways, I think we just don't know what to do with it, because it seems cold. Jesus says this, he says, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Jesus starts opening, he says, gunai, that's the word for woman in Greek, it's To us, it almost sounds degrading. I think that's because we have that kind of uh, thought in our culture, kind of like woman. And I don't, that's not Jesus' tone at all. Uh, The word is actually a respectful word. It's not, it was used as a typical greeting. Um, In fact, there are records that uh, men would call their wives that as well. The thing that's so odd was for him to call his mother that. See, while it's respectful, it, it, Actually, is kind of a distant term. It's not a very it it, it can. It's not rude, but it also is not as dear and as affectionate as you would expect Jesus to to talk to his mother, and that should strike our ears as odd. And what he says next is even more interesting. He says, "What does that have to do with us?" This phrase it it actually shows up in the Bible several times. It's a Hebrew idiom that says, "What is there between you and me?" Right? That's the Hebrew idiom. And it shows up in the Old Testament a lot. And it actually shows up two other times in the New Testament, at least, as well. And you know the other two times that it shows up in the New Testament? Jesus is speaking with demons. The other two times that is said, it is Jesus and a demon speaking. A demon says it to Jesus. Uh, I'm not sure, in one occasion, for sure, the demon says it to Jesus. And I think Jesus says it to Satan in the other. That's odd. Now, I'm not saying Jesus' mother is satanic or anything like that. But what I am saying is that this is a distancing statement. And it's hard for us to know what to do with that. I I don't think I would go so far as to say it's a rebuke. I don't think it's that harsh. But it is clear that Jesus distances himself from his mother. And, And... this is so strange to us because we, we think of, uh, we, we kind of can't imagine Jesus doing that, right? We can't imagine him distancing himself from, from his mother who was so dear to him. But here's the thing, and I think this is what's going on. And I, I can't imagine how hard this must have been for Mary. But Jesus approaches, or excuse me, Mary approaches Jesus as a son. Mary, the mother, is approaching Jesus, her son. And Jesus, I wouldn't say rebuke, but he distances from that relationship. And what is her response to that? Well, she says, do whatever he says. She doesn't just kind of accept it and walk off. Jesus' mother responds with persistent faith. See, whereas Mary, the mother, approaches Jesus, her son, Jesus kind of reproaches her, and he distances himself, Mary, the disciple, approaches her Lord, and Jesus responds. Can you imagine that? How hard that must have been for Mary? Mary, the mother, who breastfed her son, who raised him, who who took care of him when he was injured, who, you know, did all the things that a mother does for a child. And she has to approach Jesus, not with her special and unique relationship with Jesus, but just as any other disciple would. She approaches as mother and Jesus distances. And she responds with persistent faith like a disciple. And he what? He answers her petition. Mary is not exempt from Jesus as Lord. Jesus is Mary's Lord. And that is so intriguing to me. It's as, as kind of just, a, it, it seems like an offhanded comment, but there's so much wrapped up in that statement. That Mary, in this passage, is the example of faith. She's the example of faith. Just like... All these other stories we see in the Bible of, of the person who approaches God, and, and they see, receive maybe a no, or a not now, or whatever, and they respond in persistence. There's parables about it, right? The, the Canaanite woman who goes to the judge, there's that parable, and she goes to the judge and she begs, and the judge is an evil man, he says, no, 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 and she persists and persists and persists, and not because he's good, but because she's so persistent, the judge responds. And in the Old Testament, the intercessors like Moses and Abraham, Abraham in Genesis 18, right? He's interceding for, um, for Sodom and Gomorrah. And he presses again and again. He's got that persistence. And this is not the only time in the Gospels even where Jesus is approached with a request. And he distances from them and they respond in faith. Remember the, the, the uh, Gentile woman who approaches him and he, and he says... The food, is for the, animal, uh, the food is for the Jews, not for the dogs under the table, right? And she says, even the dogs eat the crumbs from the table. Wow. Look at the faith of that statement. Here Mary is tested. Here Mary is tested in her faith. They've, won, they've, they've run out of wine, Jesus. Do something about it. You're my son. I've relied on you. Right, Mary's probably a widow at this point. I've trusted in you. I've expected you to provide. Do something, Jesus, my son. Approach me as Lord, Jesus says. Approach me as Lord. And she does with that persistent faith. Do whatever he says. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification (coughs) containing 20 or 30 gallons each. So these massive water pots are there, all filled with water for purification, right? The Jewish rite of purification. And it's it's kind of unknown what they exactly for. It seems to be an exorbitant amount of water for just hand washing. It's you know, anywhere from 150 to like 180 gallons. It's a large amount of water. Um, but it could be for ritual purification as in the body, right? They're there for 7 days, that kind of thing. But this ritual purification is, is very important to the, the law of the Jews, right? You must be ritually pure when you are doing these ceremonies, right? You can't be unclean. And so Jesus says, fill those pots with water. So they fill them. And says, draw some out and take it to the head waiter. This, this head waiter or the, the ruler of the banquet is a person whose kind of job is to monitor the banquet. They're really in charge. They have a high social status right they're in charge they're watching how much people are drinking thinking about how much they need to dilute the wine all that kind of stuff to to be in charge of the party and watching the guests and making sure everything runs smoothly sometimes they weren't even like part of the family sometimes they were hired so these are very well respected people that were coming um, and being in that position right in the, that position who would be ruler of the banquet for the wedding and it says, they took that water that they drew, they took it to the head waiter. And he did not know where it came from. And this is a little side note is interesting to me. But the servants who drew it did. The servants who drew it did. So the head waiter called the bridegroom. The bridegroom is the host of this feast, right? It's his wedding. He's the host of the whole feast. And the head waiter says, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, they serve the poorer wine, right? So when everyone's still sober, they are tasting the good wine. And when they've maybe been a little inebriated, then you serve this kind of garbage wine at the end, right? And the head waiter says, no, you've done the opposite. That first stuff you served, it was okay. But what I just was brought was fantastic. It was abundant. It was magnificent. So there's three things we see in this first sign. There's three things we see in this first sign. One is this. Jesus protects his host, that bridegroom, possibly a relative, like we said. He protects them from shame. Protects them from shame. And that's not something that our culture knows a lot about. See, different cultures kind of have different realities they live under, and and American culture in particular seems to live under a schema of guilt and innocence. It's really shown probably most clearly in our legal system, right? There is this idea of you can be guilty or you can be innocent, and that runs through our culture. Middle Eastern cultures really deal much more consistently with the idea of honor and shame. Honor and shame is not an internal reality. It is not guilt and innocence where we view ourselves as guilty or innocent. Honor and shame is communal. Honor and shame is the community's response to an individual. So they can be honored by those around them, or they can be shamed. And oddly enough, I think the most our culture has finally resonated with that is through social media our culture is finally starting to understand honor and shame through the concept of social media because we so consistently shame and honor on social media. But for the ancient Jews, that was their life, right? Honor and shame. And and we don't understand the depth of shame like those cultures do, right? You hear stories about, um, sadly, tragically enough, you, know, you hear stories about you know, brothers killing their sisters because they've, maybe they've slept with someone outside of marriage and, and they brought shame on the family. So what do they do? Well, they honor kill. Right? They do an honor killing. They kill their sister to restore honor to the family. Right? Because that's how serious it is. We, we don't even have categories to understand how that could be a thought in someone's head. Well, it's because shame is that powerful. Shame is that powerful. And it's not shame is not something that is just on you. It's on your community. Mm-hmm. And so this host, by running out of supplies, is going to face immense shame. The community would revile him. All the guests would probably talk about him for years. And what does Jesus do? He restores his honor. Jesus is taking... Uh, this man who will be shamed, and he is is honoring him. Jesus actually can. Cons- there is a huge stream throughout the Bible about honor and shame that we kind of miss as Westerners. But it consistently is there. Right? The idea of Jesus naked on the cross, right? A shameful thing. We always see the pictures, right, with his little loincloth. That's not how he was naked and ashamed right? even, even in Genesis what's, what do they say about Adam and Eve that they were naked and unashamed that's the perfect state naked and unashamed and when they realized their shame of sin they covered themselves right? so Jesus on the cross naked bearing shame for the world we don't think about we think about the guilt but he's bearing shame in the same way why? to restore our honor to restore our honor That's the first thing I wanted to say about his first sign, the water into wine. The second thing is this. Jesus reveals his glory to the least. Jesus reveals his glory to the least. The head waiter, this high social status person, he doesn't know that Jesus has done this. He is completely unaware. And the guests at the wedding, they're just drinking. They don't know any different. Who knows? Who knows what Jesus did? Servants. Jesus reveals his glory to the servants. Jesus has a special love for the least. And, and as I told you, for those of you who are here the first week of this church, I told you that that is core to my heart, and I will never miss an opportunity to bring that up. Jesus' is special care for the least. He loves the least, the outcast the weak, the diminished, the shamed, the guilty. Jesus loves them. Jesus reveals his glory to the servants, to the least. And lastly, by providing, Jesus is acting as the host to the guests. Jesus is acting as the host to the guests. Typically, Right? The bridegroom is meant to be the host. And yet by providing, Jesus is acting like he's the host. Why does he do that? Why does Jesus act as host? Well, what I would say is I think Jesus is acting like his father. There's a stream throughout the Bible of God the host. And you'll see at the top of your notes, I name I, God the host. Can we put that there? that's okay oh sorry Sorry. god god that's sorry oh well you won't see on your notes but i named i named tonight's tonight's sermon i named it god the host and there's a stream throughout the scriptures about god being a host and it ties specifically to this idea of a wedding of a wedding how does the story of humanity begin it begins with God hosting a wedding. Adam is alone, and God says it is not good for him to be alone. And so he makes Eve. And it never says in any specific way that there's a wedding going on, but we know that clearly they're meant for one another, that God is instituting marriage between Adam and Eve. And what does he do? He provides an entire garden, a feast before them. And this is actually talked about in late rabbinic texts. The Jews interpreted that story in that way, that God was hosting for them. That he had provided a feast for this first wedding with just Adam and Eve, and there was a whole garden to supply food in abundance for them. And how does the story of humanity culminate in Revelation 19? The wedding feast of the Lamb. The story begins and culminates, I don't want to say ends, because obviously humanity goes on forever, according to God. Those who will be with him forever, right? But it culminates in the wedding feast of the Lamb. There's a wedding. And and who is the wedding for? Jesus And the bride, Mm -hmm. right? The church, the bride. So, who hosts that wedding? The father is hosting that wedding for his son. So, the story begins and ends with the wedding feast for humanity. God hosts for us. Think about the humility of that God who hosts for humans. And Jesus, just like his father, at, his, at a wedding for someone he loves, acts as a host. Acts as a host, just like his dad. That's the beauty of this story. The first of his signs, it says. The first of his signs. And the disciples respond to that first sign by believing. It says, this first sign revealed Christ's glory And the disciples believed in him. And it's already said they believed in him. They believed in him in chapter 1. But there are new and new Mm -hmm. and and new moments where they have deepened belief, deepened faith. They believe in him over and over. And so the disciples believe. They see his glory. The disciples and the servants see his glory. The disciples respond in belief for his first sign. And that first sign is a story of the abundance, the abundance that God has to provide. The six stone water pots, right, turned to wine. An exorbitant amount of water, all wine. What's that? Yeah, that's right. That's a lot of wine. And what's it symbolize? I mean, it's real wine, yes, but it's also symbolic of the abundance of the new age that Jesus is ushering in. That uh, Jesus in his first sign, in fact, when you go to John 3, what's it going to say? That the Son has the Spirit without measure. Right? The Son gives the Spirit without measure. And the Son does that. And this is a symbol of that. The new age that is coming, the new age of the Spirit is being started right now with Jesus in this sign. I told you, for, for again, for those of you who are here our first week, you know, I told you there were going to be two guiding questions as we walked through this book for me. And one was about belief. One was about the experience of God. And this is a moment of experience, right? You're experiencing Jesus and his glory and, and the miracle. They're tasting of his goodness, right? Drinking the wine. They taste of God's goodness. But the other question was this. What does it mean to be a good human? What does it mean to be a true human? What does... What can we understand from Jesus' life about humanity and what it means to be human? And I think in particular, this, this passage is the, one of the core pieces we see uh, is starting to illuminate some of those things about what it means to be human. So I just wrote down a couple reflections here that I wanted to mention about what it means to be human. I think Mary shows us one thing, which is everyone has to approach Jesus as Lord. If there is anyone who has an exception, a direct line, a, a perfect access to Jesus, it is Mary. Everyone has to approach Jesus as Lord. No one is exempt. Everyone has to approach him as Lord. This reflection, I have to go back a step because I missed this part on earlier, but... You know, Jesus mentions his hour. This is the first mention of his hour. And I I told you at the beginning of the series what his hour represents. What's his hour? The hour of his glorification. But what does glorification mean in the Gospel of John? Glorification is his death. Jesus' glorification is his death. Mind-boggling in some ways. Jesus' glorification is his death. So Jesus' hour is the time of his death. Jesus' hour is the time of his death. And so he says to his mother, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. When he's saying my hour has not yet come, he's saying the time for me to die is not here. Right? My hour is not here. And yet he responds to her faith. And here is one of the ironic tragedies of this passage is that Mary in pushing Jesus to do this is setting him on the path to his death when Jesus says my hour has not yet come he's saying my time to die has not yet come and yet this miracle is the direct beginning of his ministry that will lead ultimately to his death and how sad as a mother to think <clears throat> about that reality that, to reflect on that reality once he had died My hour has not yet come. And yet Jesus does it anyway. And the thing that reminded me about being human, and this is something there's no way around, is that there is a cost to doing good. The way our world is, there is a cost to to doing good. Jesus does this, this great sign to protect his host's honor, to show that he's a host like his father, and yet he knows it leads to his death. There is a cost to doing good. Another thing I think it teaches us about being human is that we're meant to spare each other from shame. We're meant to spare each other from shame. And when we can step in to spare someone from shame, we should do it like Jesus. Like Jesus. Jesus acts so that the community does not destroy someone. And we should act in that same manner. What's interesting is, it, I think probably the premier example we see of this, we'll get to later in John, John 8. In John 8, the woman caught in adultery. Jesus is clearly defending her from shame. Right? To the point that he says, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone." That's the shame of the community surrounding her. Which ostensibly, she deserves, right? In terms of what you actually think about, about what our sin deserves, our sin deserves shame. And yet God removes our shame and restores us to honor. Because God works to remove sin and its effects. So, whenever we can, we need to spare each other from shame and restore each other's honor. A fourth thing, and this will always be a cry you'll hear me say over and over. If you're here for any length of time, I hope you'll hear me say it hundreds of times. Always think about the least. Always think about the least. God loves everyone. He has a special love for the least. He loves everyone, but he has a special love for the least. Always think about the least. My last thing I told you, humanity is just a good reflection. Humanity begins and culminates with a wedding. How beautiful is that? Mm -hmm. With a feast. With us celebrating with one another. I was so moved to be able to share that with you tonight. To share a meal with you in my parents' home. This home that I love, that I grew up in. I spent 24 years living in. That's a, a symbol, a piece of the new age that will come one day, sharing a meal, right? And with that being said, I think that it fell perfectly tonight that we thought we would take communion together. That we would share in communion at the end of this night, that we shared a meal and we would share communion the story of the wedding feast. See, communion is a precious, precious reality that has many different facets. It looks backward to Jesus' death, right? It looks backward, and we remember his death when we take communion. And it also has a present reality where we discern the body, is what 1 Corinthians 10 says. Right? The present reality is we're discerning who the body is. We're sharing as a body. And it also has a future reality, which is, I will not drink it with you again until I drink it with you in my kingdom. It looks forward to the future. It looks forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's communion. And I thought, how appropriate with this passage to look forward to that wedding feast of the Lamb that we would share in it.